Our scripture this morning is from Genesis chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 26 and 27. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to follow along with me. And if you don't yet have a Bible, we have um, some out in the lobby just through those doors that are available for you to take. So please pick one up on your way out today. Again, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Dana. Uh, Well, again, it's good to see you all. Um, It's a joy to be with you as we open God's Word. And I'd love to just pray for our time as we continue on uh, to ask the Lord to bless uh, the hearing and the teaching of His Word. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come to you in prayer to worship you. Lord, we know that we are drawn to give our, our, our hearts, our affections, our minds and resources to so many other lesser things than you. And so, Lord, in this time, would you calibrate our hearts to love the things that you love, to think about the things that you think about. May we hear from your word and may your spirit enliven us and show us what it means to live in accordance with your design for life. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, as you can tell from from the angle of the sun, uh, you know, spring is fast approaching, uh, and that that means many things. And one of which is garage sale season. Garage sale season is one of my favorite seasons. I love garage sales. Some people hate them, uh, or some of our, our friends from the north call them rummage sales. I'm learning the dialects of various cultures. But, um, but garage sales, I love. And, and what I've learned is actually the very thing that I love about garage sales is the very thing that stresses my wife Megan out about garage sales, and that is haggling. I, I, I absolutely love haggling. Like, it's a spiritual gift of mine. I'll, I will train seminars, lead seminars, but I truly love it. And, and, and it's something, like, I was even talking with Patrick about it. It's like, you're not normal. It's like, I know, truer words have never been spoken. But, but what's interesting is we, we've had three garage sales as a family, and, and every time we get around to pricing items, it's always a tricky conversation for Megan and I because Megan tends to lowball items because she just wants to get rid of them and, like, just, just buy it. Like, like here, it's my mother heirloom wardrobe, 25 cents. Just take it. And, and I price things just slightly higher because I want people to haggle with me. I love it. I love those conversations. Um, and some of you, again, you're like, this is the weirdest place I've ever been to. I don't want to listen to this guy anymore. But there is something really strange about that process of, of assigning prices and values to things, especially when it's things that you've like had in your home. It is a really kind of, in some ways, very arbitrary practice. And, and for, for example, I don't know if you know this, but like the most expensive item ever purchased at the world famous like Sotheby's auctions, what was this? There's a picture of this. This is a teal ashtray. Uh, no, just kidding. This was a dish uh, 900 years old from the Song Dynasty in China. It sold for $37.68 million. Like that's ridiculous. Like this, this dish sold for $37 million. And the, the, the runner up, number two, it was this uh, teacup with chickens on it that sold for $36 million. I mean, that's the budget of a small country for crying out loud. And like, it's so crazy. Like how do you ascribe worth to something like that? And it's challenging enough when you're trying to do that for something like antiques and heirlooms. 
But, but what about something more complex? How, how do we go about assigning worth and ascribing value to a human being? What, what are the metrics and the standards that we use to determine how valuable a human being is? And, and this is difficult, especially in a day and age where it's commonly held, at least intellectually speaking, that we are nothing but highly evolved mammals, that, that humans are really just a bundle of atoms who are guided by the firing of synapses in our brain. Like, like if, if this is who we are fundamentally, how do we assign and ascribe worth to a human life? And while many in our day might intellectually hold this anthropological position that, that humans are just highly evolved apes, I don't think we functionally live that way. Regardless of your religious convictions or where you find yourself on the faith spectrum, all of us deep down, I think, deny the claim that humans are nothing more than material beings. Darwin himself even had a hard time embracing that, that conclusion. I think deep down we know that there is an inherent worth and a value to human life that we can't fully describe. I think deep down within all of us, we actually functionally believe the doctrine of the image of God. I, I truly believe this. We, we may call it something else, something different. We may not use that language, but I believe each and every one of us in this room and all of the people we interact with in our Monday life functionally believes in the image of God in some way, shape, or form. I believe that the same functional basis that causes one person to defend and protect the rights of the unborn is the same functional basis that causes someone to, to speak out and defend or, or to uh, critique the, the separation of families at the southern border. The same functional basis for all human rights, all civil rights, all defending of human sanctity of all stages I believe is rooted in this truth of the image of God, whether we see it or not. Because I believe deep down all of us know that our worth is not a given, but it, is, it must be given. You see what I did there? Like it's, it's not a given. It's not an assumed ad hoc reality that is arbitrarily assigned by humanity. Our worth is not a given. It must be given to us if it is to mean anything. And this morning, as we turn to the first page of the Bible, I want us to kind of unpack this idea of what does it mean, how do we determine the worth of human life? And the first thing we're going to look at in verse 26 is the image of God revealed. What is the image of God? And, and, and this is a complex truth for sure, but what I first want us to look at in verse 26 is the image of God revealed. Let me, let me read this again. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion. Now, again, there is so much to unpack in what we mean by the image of God. And, and frankly, we actually don't fully know what this word even whole, like completely means. But there are some, some clues that we can gather, both from the Hebrew Scriptures, but even from the way in which this word image was used in the ancient Near Eastern culture. The, the word that's translated image in Genesis 1 is the Hebrew word selim, which is very hard to say because you have T-S right at the beginning, selim. And, and this word is very important in the ancient Near Eastern culture for several reasons, but one of which is because it was used in multiple ways. 
For starters, the word selim was often used to describe uh, an icon or a statue, an image of, of a god, and, and the belief was that the gods inhabited any and all statues or images of that god on earth. And so the image of a god on earth wasn't just an icon that represented a god, it actually was inhabited by the gods themselves. So much so that these icons and images were seen as representations that they functionally represented the gods on earth. Similarly, in 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 a related way, it was common for kings and leaders in the ancient Near East to equate themselves with gods because of their power. And and this power was usually kind of given to them by the people because they would see these kings and leaders who had great power, great dominion and rule over humanity, and their main association with power and rule was the gods. And so it was actually very common for kings and leaders in the ancient Near East to refer to themselves as the image of God. And so this phrase that, that the biblical authors are using in Genesis is not just a theological term, it's rooted in history, and and Moses is saying something very profound about humanity when God declares that he has made humans in his image. Now, in in, in the Hebrew text, this word selim is often translated as idol or icon. And so like when you see in Exodus and the, the, the Ten Commandments, the Second Commandment, you shall not make for yourself any graven images of God, or when you see in Leviticus 19.4, where we see that it says, do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. This same word, idol, is the same word used in Genesis 1, and it's the same word used to describe kings in the ancient Near Eastern world. Now, when you put all of this together, like when you understand the meaning of this word, both in the biblical context, but also in the culture in which it was written, This is saying something profound about humanity because why why are we prohibited from making graven images of God? Well, it's because God has already made an image of himself and it need not be replicated. We don't need to create an image of God because he has already done that in creating us as humans. And so there's a sense in which being made in the image of God, what it means in part is that God has endowed humanity with a kind of royal value, that he has invited humanity to join him in his reign and rule, his dominion over creation and all things, to steward the resources God has created for the good of creation and all people and the glory of his name. What God is doing in declaring that humans are made in his image is that he is essentially giving all humans this kind of royal ambassadorial identity, that you are now my representatives in the world and extending my reign and rule over all of creation. And so what this kind of means is that the person sitting next to you is royalty. In a very real sense, what, what, what I believe Genesis 1 is telling us is that you can turn to the person next to you and say, good day to you, your majesty. You, you can say that, you don't have to do that now, but, but there's a sense in which what this means, being made in God's image, is that we possess a level of royalty, which is why C.S. Lewis, in his great story, The Chronicles of Narnia, he has the Pevensey children, the four Pevensey children, the, the only humans in Narnia, as royalty. They are distinct from the other creatures in Narnia because they are humans. And because of that, they are declared to be kings over, kings and queens over Narnia. 
It's also what compelled Lewis to pen these words in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, where he says, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it. And he goes on to say, it is in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. What Lewis is articulating is essentially the, the outworkings of what the image of God means. That every human being is made in God's image and thus is endowed with an inherent worth that cannot be taken, diminished, or, or, or even elevated because God has given it to them. We all know deep down that there is a worth in every human life, but that worth cannot just be a given. It cannot just be assumed. It must be given to us. And yet, this compelling doctrine that I, I, again, I believe that most humans functionally believe it, even though they don't recognize it, this compellingly attractive doctrine has also been seriously abused throughout human history. It, it, it has been distorted and to justify uh, perspectives and practices that are actually horridly antithetical to the image of God. And so I think we would be remiss if, if we didn't touch on the way in which the Im image of God has been abused throughout the history of the church in particular. For, for centuries, many Christians actually believed that the image of God was a dynamic reality, that it was fluid, that, that it was subject to change, predicated upon one's competencies, their capacities, and their skill sets. And so because of this, the more you possess these qualities of, of intelligence, of productivity, of capacity, you possess more of the image of God, a dynamic reality. And this way of thinking paved the way to countless injustices in our world. In, in his phenomenal book, theologian John Kilner, uh, in his book, Dignity and Destiny, he, he points this out in saying, this way of thinking, referring to this idea of the image of God being dynamic, it's subject to change based on how pr productive and how effective you are. He says, this way of thinking has encouraged such abuses as the mistreatment of impoverished and disabled people, the Nazi Holocaust, the exterminations of Native American groups, and the oppression of enslaved Africans. In fact, I mean, you, you can look at the entire transatlantic slave trade as being justified and empowered in many ways by the abuse of this doctrine, where many Christians believed that the, the Africans were, were not uh, made in the same way that other white people were, that they were not made in the image of God. In fact, one historian in documenting this said that unlike white slaveholders who were in God's image, Blacks were described as people created by nature in the likeness of beasts. In 1900, I mean, just, just over 100 years ago, people, the theologian uh, 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 Charles Carroll, he wrote the book, The Negro, a Beast, or In the Image of God. And in it, Carroll basically made this argument, if the white was created in the image of God, which was just this kind of assumption, this basis that everyone just assumed to be true. If the white was created in the image of God, then the Negro was made after some other model. This is just, uh, just over 100 years ago. 
And it was this work and others like it that were in actually wide circulation among Christians at this time. And it paved the way to what was uh, something that was called the, the Christian Identity Movement. And the Christian identity movement, it it developed in significant popularity uh, in various places in the country, uh, which paved the way for groups like the KKK and the Aryan nations that all based upon came from this, this impoverished understanding of the image of God as being a dynamic reality that not all human beings are granted the, the privilege and luxury of having. You see, when the worth of a human life is not given by God, and when man possesses the ability to determine how much of the image of God is in someone else, we find ourselves on a slippery slope of devaluing life at all stages. It's not just a matter of of racial injustices, but in more recent decades, we've seen the rise in the widespread approval and celebration even of things like abortion and euthanasia. Where the image of God is not seen in all people, we, we start to see the devaluing of human life and the justification of atrocities like this. Or we see it in the way in which mass incarceration has become such a pervasive reality, particularly in America, where we have the dehumanizing and the demonizing of of convicts and felons, that they are not first and foremost image bearers, they are convicts and felons. I'm not saying that we need to get rid of, of the criminal justice system, but we must have a fundamental understanding of how we view people first and foremost. We see the way in which the image of God has been abused and how we, we label people first as we see them as, as illegal immigrants rather than first seeing them as image bearers of God. Is this the first lens that we use to look at all people? When we abuse this doctrine or lose this doctrine, it's not hard to see why an evil and an atrocity that we just witnessed in New Zealand earlier this week, where 50 Muslims were, were murdered and shot by a man This kind of action atrocity does not come about from a place where the image of God is seen in all people. And so, yes, while I believe that there is goodness in this doctrine, the abuse of it paves the way for countless evils. When we are not fundamentally marked by the image of God, then we will find ourselves marking others by a secondary category that will make it easier and easier to justify certain mindsets and mistreatments that can easily lead to evils like this in our world. There's no room for this kind of thinking and behavior among followers of Jesus, which is why Jesus' own half-brother James, in describing the importance of the image of God and the use of our words, says in James chapter 3, he tells us in referring to the power of the tongue, He says, with it, our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Now, there's a sense in which I I, I think we can see that the the toxicity of, of the defamation of the image of God, it's not as prevalent in our day today. The fumes still, I think, linger in some ways, and I think we have seen, though, progress in the ways in which we have tried to defend human life, tried to value human life. But what's interesting is that the way in which our culture broadly has attempted to do that, it's produced an interesting inconsistency in the way in which we've tried to defend human life by saying the best way to defend human life is to get rid of God, essentially. We must unfetter ourselves from faith and religion and God 
And what's so interesting about this is that, you see, we want the implications that the image of God provides without believing in the God whose image we bear. And we find our culture speaking out of both sides of its mouth, and the church does that as well. I love how G.K. Chesterton put this in his book, Orthodoxy, which he wrote over 100 years ago, in describing the inconsistency of this mindset. He says, the man of this school, he first goes to a political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they were beasts. Then he takes his hat off, or takes his hat and umbrella, and goes on to a scientific meeting where he proves that they practically are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist, and I think this describes people in our day today, in short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. We want to rid ourselves of God, but by doing so, we lose any and all basis for defending human rights and the sanctity of human life at all stages. Deep down, we all know that our worth is not just a given, but that it must be given to us. And if this is true, then this has serious implications for how we think about our work, how we think about the mission of the church, how we think about the way in which we conduct our lives. And and this is where I just want to spend the, the rest of our time. As we've seen the image of God revealed, we have a little bit of an understanding of of what it means that we're made in God's image, that we possess an ambassadorial royalty, so to speak. We've seen the image of God abused. But what does it look like if we are to embrace the reality of the image of God? If we embrace this truth, then we ought to find ourselves with a greater sense of worth, a wider scope of wholeness, and a bigger picture of the church, a fuller picture of the church. And those are the three things I want us to look at here. The first is the greater sense of worth. We live in a culture where, in many ways, value is assigned based on your accomplishments, your accolades, uh, your acquired wealth, and your activities. And, and, And if that's how we determine worth, when this is our culture's understanding of human worth, then we will find ourselves, at best, giving preferential treatment to those who are seen as superior, or we will find ourselves kind of devaluing those who are seen as inferior. But when human worth is given to us by God and is not dynamic but is static, then we have a different way of relating to all people. I I recently started reading a book called uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Image of God. Uh, it's a book about Dr. King's um, understanding of this doctrine that very much shaped uh, the, the civil rights movement. And, and, and probably no other line in all of, of Dr. King's library of writings uh, kind of articulates his understanding of the image of God than this line from a sermon that he entitled The American Dream. And Dr. King said this, he says, the image of God is the idea that all men and women, but all men and women have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him or her worth. It gives him dignity. We must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. The image of God serves as the basis upon which we value and protect life at every stage. 
The image of God is the basis upon which we are able to speak on behalf of the rights of the unborn. It's what compels us to speak out against bigotry and racism in all of its shapes and sizes. It's what leads us to defend and protect and cherish the widow, the immigrant, the orphan, and the poor, as the Old Testament speaks of over and over and over again. And it's what compels us to value young women by giving them carnations on Valentine's Day. It is this truth that compels us to be a people who value human life. Without it, we are lost. It's why in the wisdom literature of Proverbs, we read these words in describing the value of all humanity. The rich and the poor meet together in this. The Lord is the maker of them all. The image of God is to be seen as the primary thing that we see in all people. Before we assign any other label or category, the first thing we must see in all people is the image of God, inherent worth given by God. That means that the people you do business with and that you work alongside, that the the people you go to school with, that the people that you raise and live in your home with, these people are first to be seen as people made in God's image, dearly loved and cherished by Him. The image of God gives us a greater sense of worth, but secondly, it also gives us a wider scope of wholeness. We need to see humanity in bearing God's image as possessing what what Dutch theologian Anthony Hoykema refers to as a psychosomatic unity. That's just a fun phrase to use at brunch with your friends. Uh, but, But really what this phrase means, psychosomatic unity, means that God has created us not purely as material beings and not purely as immaterial beings, but as a beautiful and mysterious union of the two, that God values the spiritual and the physical And that this has serious implications, that that our physical health impacts our spiritual health and vice versa in various ways. It's why the psalmist in Psalm 32 says that, that when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away and groaned all day long. Because we were created in the image of God, we possess a psychosomatic unity. And this has serious implications for how we look at other people, how we conduct ourselves in our Monday life. Followers of Jesus need to consider this wholeness of life in the way in which we go about our work and interactions and service and contribution in the world. How are we working to build the wholeness of whole beings in the work that we do? Do we care for the whole person? Do we value their spiritual health as well as their physical health, their emotional health, and their financial health? Do we view our discipleship and neighborly love through this wider scope of what wholeness and fullness of life and flourishing looks like? To neglect the body at the expense of the soul, I'm sorry, to neglect the body in order to care for the soul, or to neglect the soul in order to care for the body, stems from an impoverished understanding of what it means that God has made us in his image and values our whole life. When we embrace the image of God, we gain a greater sense of worth. We gain a wider scope of wholeness. But thirdly, we also, as we look back at the grand narrative of Scripture, we see a fuller picture of the church. To understand now what it means that we bear God's image, we actually have to look at at what the true image of God is. You see, the opening chapters of Genesis, while Moses wasn't fully aware of what he was penning, 
The words that he is writing in Genesis 1 is actually pointing to, it is an echo of declaring the true image of God seen in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the biblical narrative is a beautiful story that from page one is preparing us for Jesus, the true image of God, the one who reflected the glory of God perfectly in all forms. Which is why the Apostle Paul, in describing Jesus in the book of Colossians, has these beautiful words to say. It's a longer section of Scripture, but I can't help but read it all. Paul says he, referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So you're seeing Jesus back at the beginning of creation. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The image of God that we all bear is actually pointing us to the true image of God in Jesus Christ, who is the head of all things and most notably is the head of his church that Paul gives special attention to in his writings. And his church is comprised of people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. That the church of Jesus Christ is a multi-ethnic institution where all people of all backgrounds have come together who are united now by what Christ has accomplished on their behalf. A people that Jesus is bringing to the Father, making for himself a people from all peoples of the earth unified together by the redeeming and reconciling work of Jesus through his blood shed on the cross. When we see Jesus as the true image of God, we as image bearers now have a fuller picture of what the church is and what the church ought to be. When we see Jesus as the true image, it compels us to be a people who work towards matters of unity, of reconciliation, of peace and justice among God's people. That the pursuit of diversity within the church is not just a nice quality that it would be nice to have if we could get there, but rather what we see is that it is central to the value. It is, it is a central value to the church of Jesus Christ and to Jesus himself, whose work on the cross is about making all people one through him, making the many one who will one day be one. Recently, I, I finished a book that was incredibly heavy, but incredibly important. It was a book called The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. And Tisby, who's a phenomenal thinker and writer, um, lovingly calls the American church to consider and reflect on the way in which the church has been complicit in racist practices throughout history. And I know that, that that's a hard thing for people to read and to process and discover. And, and as I read, while I found myself convicted and, and heartbroken and burdened and angered and grieved, I also found myself filled with hope as I listened to Tisby's words as he described why this conversation, why all of this matters, 
as he painted a picture of what the goal of the church of Jesus Christ is. In showing us why this is important, he gives us a picture of what is to come, and this is what Tisby says. In that heavenly congregation, we will finally see the culmination of God's gathering, a diverse people unified by faith in Christ. We will surround the throne of the Lamb as a redeemed picture of all the ethnic and cultural diversity that God created. Our skin color will no longer be a source of pain or arrogant pride, but it will serve as a multi-hued reflection of God's image. We will no longer be alienated by our earthly economic or social position. We will no longer clamor for power over one another. Our single focus will be worshiping God for eternity in sublime fellowship with each other and our Creator. Amen? Brothers and sisters, if this, if this is the goal of the church, if this is where Jesus is building everything towards, if this is the picture we see in the last book of the Bible, if this is the culmination of the corporate image of God in all people redeemed by Jesus within humanity, then we ought to be a people who are diligent in our pursuit of a gospel-empowered work towards love and unity and peace and reconciliation among all peoples who are in Christ. We must embrace the truth of Jesus as the true image of God who has come to make us his own by making us one with him. And that he has done this through his life of righteousness lived perfectly for us, through his death of atonement paying the penalty of our sin in full, and through his victorious resurrection conquering sin and death forever. This is actually where our ultimate worth is found. Yes, in the fact that we were made in God's image, but even more beautiful than that, that we will be united to the one who is the true image of God forever. For our worth is not a given, it must be given. And thanks be to God that he has given it to us in full by giving us his son, the true image of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you as people, Lord, who, who do, we, we functionally believe that, that there is value and worth in all human life. And Lord, also while we find ourselves inconsistently living with that truth, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to see how we have failed to see the value of all human life and all people. Lord, I do pray for your spirit to bring that sense of conviction in our hearts. Show us what we do not see. Show us how we have created a gradation in the image of God and all people. But Lord, more than that, as we repent of our sin in those ways, Lord, would you fill us with the knowledge of the true image of God, Jesus Christ, who came to redeem us, to forgive us, and reconcile us to you so that we might, through your grace, be agents of reconciliation in this world. Lord, may we leave this place and look upon every person that you send us into contact with. May we see them as people created in your image that you love and cherish. And may this form and shape the way in which we live our lives, the way in which we go about our work, the way in which we conduct ourselves in school and live within our communities. May we do this, Lord, reflecting your glory for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. This morning is taken from Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. 
Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Go in peace.